Well, today we are concluding our series on 1 Timothy. If you have been here for six weeks, you can at least say you have heard an entire book of the Bible read aloud to you. And it says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and then keep it. Now, the good news is that starting next Sunday, we're going to begin a brand new series that we're going to call Urgent. Urgent. Things that we need to do right now. And again, for four weeks, we are going to read through four full books of the New Testament again. We'll be reading 2nd and 3rd John and Jude and Philemon. You might want to get a running start. You could probably knock those off during halftime of a football game today easily. But today we're in the last chapter of 1 Timothy, and Paul talks about a believer's attitude toward money, which is why I've got the money tie on today. In fact, in chapter 6, as you paid attention to Jimmy as he read before, it contains one of the most misquoted Bible passages of all time. A lot of people run around and say money is the root of all evil, when in fact what Timothy learned from Paul was this in verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I'm not here today to say that money is good or bad. I mean, money in itself is not good or bad. The heart and the motives, though, of the person who has the money or who is out to get the money is what determines the effect that money has on any person in any situation. So today we're going to talk about a believer's attitude towards his or her job and the money. But before we do that, we're going to take a little detour again, uh, because Paul always seems to toss in some other things that take a little bit of explanation. Paul references something here that was a cultural value that has dramatically changed over the years. I don't know if you caught it, but in chapter 6 he talks about slavery, and he kind of talked about it in a kind of a matter-of-fact sort of way. Now, Bible critics for many years, ever since they've discovered 1 Timothy, have often asked, why didn't Paul, or why didn't other Bible writers condemn slavery? It sure sounds like they're kind of in favor of it. <clears throat> Actually, that's a pretty good question. But if you take yourself and you put yourself into the mind of a first century citizen, Paul and Timothy were certainly first century citizens, you begin to understand their cultural attitude towards slavery. Now, even though Paul was divinely inspired to write Scripture, contrary to what some people think, he was not the fourth person of the Trinity. He was a human being just like you and me. We know that the Holy Spirit inspired his writings, but he did not dictate them word for word to Paul, like take over so he just like some robot who just scrolled it down like that. And so as a result, his writings, like all of the other writings that we read in the Bible, reflect a man of his time. See, that's how God has chosen to give us divinely inspired Scripture 
through the writings of individuals like Peter and James and John and Paul. So Paul, when he wrote this, I don't think he could have envisioned a world without slavery. It happened to be what was happening in the time when he lived. In fact, at the time Paul was writing to Timothy, it is estimated that nearly 40%, four out of every ten people of the Roman population was a slave. I mean, the world economy at that time was built on slave labor. During the first century, the church certainly had no influence on Roman law. I mean, Christians at this time were being persecuted, they were being imprisoned, and they were thrown out to be fed to wild animals. I mean, so they were hardly in a position to bring about any social change. So when Paul acknowledges the existence of slavery, he is not condoning slavery. He never refers to a slave or as a good or marvelous institution, but rather, if you paid close attention to the word as it was read this morning, he refers to it as a burden. And he says, he says some things that were pretty radical for his time. I mean, he tells slaves to work for their masters as if they're working for the Lord. That's pretty radical stuff. And then he tells his masters, and this is pretty radical too, that they are to treat their slaves with respect, to treat them as a brother or sister in the Lord. Now, one reason we understand this today is because the Bible teaches us about the dignity of all people and the equality of all people. And even when Paul was telling slaves and masters how to treat one another, he was planting another seed of change. And maybe some of you remember this verse from Galatians chapter 3 where he said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so as we read God's Word, we need to discern, again, like we've done before, like where we talked about women being silent in the church and the role of women in the church, we need to discern that kind of underlying principle that Paul is teaching and then figure out how we can take that underlying principle in our lives today. And see, that's why Paul talks about slaves and masters, because it has something to do with our work life. In fact, Paul has a lot to say about this. He talks about a believer's attitude towards their job, toward their workplace, toward the marketplace, and that which we get for working, which is called what? Money. So there are three things in here this morning that I want to share with you. Here's the first thing. Do your job with integrity. Now, I, lo I love the Greek word for integrity because it means to have a one-piece heart. A one-piece heart. In verse 1, it says, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Now, people who write about slavery in the ancient world tells us that there was a great deal of bitterness between slaves and masters. Slaves, they tell us, typically did as little as possible, which only made their masters angry. And masters typically had the attitude that the only way to get work out of a slave was to beat them regularly. That's why Paul says, you're under this burden of slavery. There's nothing you can do about it, but you can treat your master with respect. And you can do your job with integrity. And in doing so, 
he says, God will be glorified. Now let's move this into this day and age, 2012. There no doubt are some of you that are seated here this morning who have bosses that you consider to be incompetent and ineffective, and maybe you think you're working for somebody who absolutely deserves none of your respect. But friends, it doesn't matter whether your boss is, a, is brilliant or a buffoon, the position itself is worthy of respect. Those of you that grew up in the military know that you salute the rank, huh? Treat your boss respectfully, whether or not you feel that he or she deserves it. See, treating your boss with respect doesn't necessarily change your boss, but it certainly defines who you are. If you are sitting here this morning and you're waiting for that perfect boss or you're waiting for that perfect job or that perfect company to come along before you give 100% to that job, I don't think it will ever happen. There will always be inadequacies in the place you work. There will always be inadequacies with the people that you work for. There will always be something that you can use as an excuse for phoning in your performance. See, how well you work doesn't say anything about your job. It says something about you. And it says something about your character or your lack of character. People with integrity do whatever job they have, and they do it well. I have worked pretty much most of my kind of grown-up life. I can remember when I got my first job at about age 11 or 12. I remember my grandpa driving me down to where I was going to work, and he gave me a little bit of grandfatherly advice. He said, every job you get, you should do it like you're going to do it for the rest of your life. At the time, I didn't really think that what I was going down to do was something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. But because my grandpa told me I should think about it that way, I thought about it that way. Now, I don't know if he even knew the Bible passage that kind of fits in there. But maybe without even knowing it, he was saying what Paul said in Colossians 3.23. He said, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. See, that's do your job with integrity. Treat your boss with respect, even if he or she does not deserve it. Give 110%. And I know 110% is impossible. I'm just saying it. Give it everything you've got. And if you're lucky enough to have a Christian boss, a believing boss, give it 111% or 112%. Did you catch what Paul said in verse 2? He said, those who have believing masters. In other words, if you're working for somebody who is a believer, you are not to show less respect for them because they're brothers. Instead, you are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and are dear to them. There are some Christian employees, and I know this from working with people who are Christian employees, who think that they should somehow be paid more for doing less, that they should somehow be allowed to get away with certain things that other 
non-Christian employees can't simply because they go to the same church or belong to the same denomination as their boss. That's pretty sad. On the other hand, I hear this way too often from Christian employers. I have a good friend who hires people continually as day laborers, and he says he has a hard time hiring Christians. In fact, he said, I have trouble with every Christian I have ever hired. He said, I, I, I just want to hire them again. He said, they, they just don't have a work ethic. Now, that's a strong indictment against Christians. I have Christian employers who said, I will never work for another Christian again. They expect too much and they pay too little. I mean, that's a problem. There's no integrity that the Bible talks about. And it works both ways, but what Paul tells us here is if your boss is a believer, don't try to get away with doing something less. And in fact, work even harder because your, your boss is a brother or a sister in Christ. See, here again, there's an underlying principle that what Paul is teaching to the slaves, and it's this, that Christians, I don't care what job you have. And some of you say, well, I don't have a job, I'm retired. Guess what? That's your job. Maybe you're just called to be a grandma or a grandpa. Do it with integrity. Oh, I'm just a student. I don't have a job. That's your job. Do it with integrity. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. That's your job. Do it with integrity. That's what Paul would say. Not slacking off. See, when you work this way, sometimes your, quote, boss becomes a better boss. Sometimes a better job comes along for someone simply because they had a good attitude and because they were a hard worker. And every time you commit yourself to do your job with integrity, working for the Lord instead of men, I can tell you from personal experience, you're always going to have more satisfaction from your, your effort. Here's the second thing. Manage your money with contentment. Paul repeatedly through this letter talks about false teachers. I mean, we've talked about it all the way from chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and in 6. And he said there's always these false teachers who's like to stir up a bunch of nonsense in the church. And he talks about how conceited they are and how they love to stir up controversy and how they love to cause friction by, you know, gossiping against one another and how they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And I'm not going to jump off on that subject, but, you know, there are certainly churches and preachers today who tell you that the more godly you are, the more financial gain you will have. I think they're a little bit out of Scripture when they say that. Paul says godliness is a means of great gain, but when it's seasoned with contentment. You know, there's some interesting paradoxes of prosperity, and that's the more content you are without something, the more likely you are to receive it. Conversely, if you have to have something in order to be happy, the odds are greater that you probably will never get it. And if you do get it, you really won't care much about it. It will slip through your fingers. I'm going to say something that, that, that may make some of you wonder about this a little bit, but I'm going to say it nonetheless. God gives you only what he can trust you with. If you ever wondered why you have what you have, perhaps it's because God has only given you 
what he can trust you with. If you have to have something to be happy, maybe what God is saying is, you don't fully trust me. You're likely to put all your hope into this thing rather than into God himself. I've seen this happen again and again in the way that people approach personal relationships, for example. I've known people who are absolutely desperate to have a boyfriend, absolutely desperate to have a girlfriend, absolutely desperate to be married, and I've seen them go through one breakup and and one mess after another, and then when they finally get to the point where they learn to be content being single, God sends the right person into their life. I've also seen it play out in people's financial lives. When they finally stop grasping for dollars and stop needing things in order to be happy and learn to experience contentment with or without things, they suddenly find themselves with abundance. There's another principle of prosperity in Scripture. People who are truly content with what they have most often have more than they need. See, contentment does not come naturally. The Bible says it's something you need to learn. See, trusting in riches is the exact opposite of contentment. That's why Paul said in verse 17, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Did you catch that? Look at that last thing. God richly provides us with everything we need for our what? Enjoyment. I think it's interesting that he uses the word enjoyment and not satisfaction. Because things can be enjoyed, but they don't provide long-term satisfaction. I mean, that kind of contentment only comes when you place God at the center of your lives and not something that money can buy. I read this not long ago. It said, there is nothing you can buy on credit that can bring enough joy into your life to offset the misery that being in debt will cause. Let me say that again. There is nothing you can buy on credit that can bring you enough joy into your life to offset the misery that being in debt will cause. You know how you practice contentment? I was going to make a joke of it. You know, we, we go over to Terry's house, or Terry's house. It's our house. Terry lives in it. But she's got this goofy cat named Tuffy. And it's kind of a needy cat. And I always tell the cat, having food and fur, be content. And I used to say that to the cat we used to have, which was even more neurotic than this one. And now I just say Learn to live with it. Well, how do you learn to be content? I think a great way to learn contentment is just to memorize a little piece of Scripture. The Lord is my shepherd. Well, how's it go on? I shall not want. Now, said differently, what I have in God, through Jesus Christ, far surpasses anything I don't have in this world. I will be satisfied with Him even if nothing else comes my way. I mean, think of how you could practice contentment in your finances. Hey, the Lord's my shepherd. I, 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 don't, need, I don't need it. 
in your career, the Lord's my shepherd, I have no want. Your marital status, your acquisitions, your possessions. I mean, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't really need any more than this. Content. There's a third principle he teaches here, and that is to leave a legacy of generosity. There's a very interesting book out. It's called How to Die Broke. Now, some of you say, I can do that all on my own. But it's written by a Christian, and it's rather fascinating. And he said, we ought to spend it before we leave. But he talks about investing it in the kingdom, to not leave big piles behind for somebody else to either maybe waste or use the wrong way. It makes some sense. You'd have to read the book, and you can judge for yourself. But Paul says in verses 18 and 19, Command them to do good. In other words, you've got some money, you've got some cash. Do good. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous, willing to share. In this way, you'll do what? You'll lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That's very much reminiscent of some words of Jesus in Matthew 6, where Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, how do you, how do you store up treasure in heaven? Somebody said one time, what you do is you send it on ahead. That's how you store it up in heaven. What you're really doing is you give, and you bless others, and you do it right now. Now, I know there are a lot of people who tell themselves, when I start making money, I will be very generous with my abundance. You know, that works just about as well as the idea that says, I'll start working hard when I get a decent job. If you're not generous now, if you're not a good worker now, there's really no reason to think that you're going to be generous or a good worker later. See, now is the time to start creating your legacy. I'd say even if you only have a little to give, give what you can. Proverbs 19, 17 said, He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. Proverbs 22, 9, A generous man will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. I'll have to admit to you that I have to work in this area, just like many of you. Let me give you just a a small little example. Several months ago, months or two ago, there was somebody who came to the church, a young man and his son. And after church, I spent some time with them and talked to them and listened to their story and prayed about their story and asked God for wisdom and discernment about the story and finally was moved to help them out as they were trying to get some place to reestablish their life and to get things back on order. And so I decided to take them in my car after church and drive them down to our bank and go to the ATM and give them some money. And I wrestled the whole time with how much money to give them and prayed that the Lord would give me a direction. And I finally stuck that little card in there and I punched in $200. And I wondered even when the money came out whether I should be doing this. 
I was uh, greatly relieved when I got home and I told my wife what I'd done. She says, well, that's what I would have done, too. <laughs> that was a good thing to do. And I encouraged them to get some gas and to eat. They've been living down in Spring Lake Park for several days. The only clothes they had were the clothes that they were had in their car. And I sent them off. This last week, Vicki came and said, so-and-so is at the door. They want to see you. And it's like, who? And I said, no, send them in. And in walked that man and his son. Big smiles on their faces. He said, we just had to come back and show you. Thanks to you. He held up this piece of paper. He said, we're back on our feet. This is the lease to the apartment we just moved in. And, and my son is now enrolled at, is at College Hills Elementary School. And he said, and I am going to be hired on to be one of the assistant managers at Whataburger. He said, thanks for taking a chance on me. Now, I'm not telling you that story to, for you to walk around and say, oh, boy, what a good boy your pastor is. I'm not telling you that at all. All I'm just saying is that we need to learn to listen to the Lord. I'm not saying give money to anybody and everybody. We talked about that last week. You need to have some wisdom. You need to have some discernment. But you never know what seeds you're planting or investing in the lives of other people. See, now is the time to start creating a legacy. And even if you only have a little, you give it. Here's another paradox. Even though we don't give just to get, it's possible to give without, get, without getting something back in return. I never, ever figured on seeing that man and his son again. But I did. And I tell you, just, just to have them come in and say thank you was a blessing to me. I mean, the Bible teaches us that what you, what, that what you reap, you sow, and whoever sows generously reaps generously. Now, you might ask yourself, why should we give? Why should we bother to do that? Uh, I, there's probably plenty of reasons, but I think, you know, we should give just for the pleasure of giving. Uh, we should give for what the gift could possibly do for someone else. Uh, we should give for the glory it will bring to God. To will step back and say, God, thank you for blessing me so I can be a blessing to someone else. To God be the glory. We should give for the spiritual growth that it leads to in our lives. Somebody told me one time that when you become a generous giver, it stretches your soul. I kind of like that. And maybe we all need to have our soul stretched a little bit more. Because when we give, what do we do? We become more like Jesus, who, you know, we, more like God, who is the greatest giver. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son Jesus. You bless people and you create a legacy that will outlive you. In fact, it will follow you all the way into heaven. One last thing as we close down this series. Whatever happened to Timothy? Whatever became of Timothy? Well, as I mentioned way back in week one, according to tradition, he stayed at that church in Ephesus for about 30 years. Thirty more years after he got this first letter, he led that church in Ephesus as a faithful pastor. He preached the gospel with boldness. 
But there came a time also when Timothy was put into prison, just like his disciple or his disciple maker, Paul. His release is mentioned if you read it in the closing verses of the book of Hebrews. Sometime around the year 90 A.D., about 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when Timothy was a very old man, he protested a pagan festival that was being held in Ephesus, a pagan festival that was dedicated to the goddess Diana. And if you can remember back to our series on Revelation, that pagan festival, and as a result for protesting that paganism, he was dragged through the streets and he was stoned to death. That's how the lives of many Christians, especially Christian leaders, ended in the first century. Now, Timothy became a disciple or an apprentice to the Apostle Paul. Paul was the one, or his mother and his grandmother, who led him to faith. And afterwards, Timothy worked with Paul, traveled with him, learned from him. Timothy began as a disciple and ended his life as a disciple maker in the kingdom of God. Friends, in closing, I just want to tell you, you can take the same journey. And I think on the screen you'll see a, uh, that this journey where we've been in the last six weeks. It means living a life of love and mercy and transformation, where we are no longer the same as we are, as we were when we started. It means wanting for others what God wants for them. I mean, when the Bible says He wants all men to be saved and come to the glory of the knowledge of God, that means we're part of that. It means dedicating yourself to becoming a person of character and training yourself to be godly. It means taking care of other people. We talked about that last week, about helping our families. We talked about the widows, remember, and the orphans. It means taking care of yourself, doing your job with an attitude of integrity and that you manage your money with an attitude of contentment and that you leave a legacy built on generosity. That's a good part of what it means to be a disciple. May God use all of us greatly as we seek to follow his example. Amen.